That was Sound of Borneo, performing at the World Rainforest Music Festival in Sarawak. Melbourne journalist Melinda Jackson was recently in Sarawak, the largest state in Malaysia on the island of Borneo. She talks to Graham Kemlo, who's also visited Sarawak a number of times, about the best reasons to visit this largely tribal state that was once run by a British soldier who became the White Raja, having helped the Sultan of Brunei to win a war. Belinda describes what she loved about Sarawak, particularly its wildlife and its food, some of which is found only in the jungle. Well, Belinda Jackson is back on terra firma, and uh, she she loves to travel, this girl. I think any chance she gets to hop off somewhere and explore a new part of the world and come back and tell us all about it, she takes, which I'm extremely grateful for. Belinda, you're just back from Sarawak, and I have to put my hand up and say, it's my fault if you hated it. <laughs> Why would I hate it? I loved well, it. I, I thought it was oh, sensational. Well, uh, I'm pleased to hear, because I did cajole you into into going and having a look at this place, because um, I think it's fabulous, and it's so little known, really. Yeah, it's um, it is considering uh, you know we we you know um, Kuala Lumpur, you know the capital of Malaysia used to be on that kangaroo route when you were going up to the UK or up anywhere in Europe. So we were always Australians were always going through KL, but um, Sarawak is the other side of the other side of of Malaysia. It's one of the it's one of the um, two states on the island of Borneo, which of course Borneo is shared with Indonesia, Malaysia, and uh, Brunei as well. So there are two states there, Sarawak and Sabah, which has recently become more famous as Penny Wong's birthplace. Mm. Um, God love our foreign minister. So, and, and Sarawak is a bit of, and Sabah has had quite a lot of um, publicity. It's had it's had a lot more visitors in the past um, in its uh, Kota Kinabalu, its capital, yeah. or KK, um, as everybody calls it. Sarawak's a bit, a bit of a sleeping beauty, really. And that's the attraction of it, you know. It's it's uh, it's off the radar, and I can't think of I cannot think of a good reason why it is. No, I can't either. And um, I went there, I don't know, a dozen years ago. I would say I first went there, and then I just fell in love with the place. I mean, to be able to see the orangutan, and I, as I have said to you, I, possibly the last place on earth you will see this animal in the wild. Although you're telling me things aren't as great as they once seemed over there, what, what's going on with the orang? Uh, that was well to see them was one of the reasons I wanted to go. Also, I just think it's an incredibly complex society. I mean, Malaysia's fascinating anyway for its you know for its its ethnic its ethnic makeup. Yeah. And and Sarawak, uh, interestingly, we were just saying before this that uh, Sarawak flips on its head the the religious structure in that the peninsula Ma- Malaysia or mainland Malaysia is predominantly Muslim. Uh, Sarawak is a predominantly Christian state. Mm. Um, and but you know with its with its wildlife outside the capital Kaching um, are a couple of wildlife centres which are run by the government and then. And they have conservation efforts there for the orang, which you can see in um, at Semengo Nature Reserve in a semi-wild situation. Yeah. So they're not so they're not actually wild. It's a semi-wild. So so uh, it's an enclosed. It, it's a, a you know it's a massive enclosed park, and the handlers there provide food on a number of platforms that the that orangutan come in. This time of year is uh, fruit season. So. 
it's actually a good story when the orang don't turn up because it means they are out in the forest foraging for themselves. They yeah. don't need to come in and have this supplementary feeding on these platforms, which is where tourists come and they can see them. And, you know, and therefore providing an income as well and, and keeping awareness of these, you know, of these inc- incredible animals. They are amazing, um, really. That, do you know what, what struck me? What struck me was just the sheer size of them. And I didn't see the biggest of them. I, um, the other of the two wildlife parks, which is um, Madang, which is yeah. uh, to the west of, to the west of uh, Kaching, that had um, that had a rehabilitation and a much more clinical area. So that was yeah. that was rehabilitating uh, an, um, animals that have been discarded. That are, you know that are too, actually mostly too damaged to be released into the wild. And we're talking things like th- that's the pet trade really and hunting and the pet trade. So um, I don't know who might have thought it would be a great idea to have an orangutan as a pet or a sun bear, which was. I've got to be honest, that was my reason for going because I wanted to see these beautiful little bears, the smallest of the species, and, and I did, and I saw them in captivity, which, you know, it was, it was pretty sad. hard. It's, it's really heartbreaking because yeah. some, of them, some of them have been kept as pets. You know, if you thought having a Labrador was a big commitment or, let's say, I don't know, a St Bernard, then, you know, quadruple it and have that thing chomping on your sofa. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, it always shocks me. I've, I've, I've been to a bear sanctuary. I was in a bear sanctuary in Kosovo a couple of years ago, and they had these brown bears. There were a couple of cubs that were now almost fully grown that were taken from somebody's lounge room. And I was thinking, what in what planet would you think you would have two bears living in your apartment with you? So that, that, that pet trade thing in bears always blows my mind a bit. Yeah. I guess, you know, in Semengo, we, uh, it, so it was fruiting season. There was only one orangutan came to visit and uh, she was quite, she was a, a, an elderly lady, unkindly, you might even call her geriatric, 51 mm. years old and had three children. Um, and you could tell that she was just like, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm tired now, <laughs> I'm over this, I'm just going to come down. Someone is literally going to throw me a banana every three minutes or some mm. papaya or sweet potato. I don't need to go out and hunt and gather. I've done my time, I've earned my dues. And so she just sort of rolled around and, um, you know, took no notice of anybody. We were we were much closer than I thought I would ever be to an orangutan. And I was staying well back. But a lot of people were running up to I don't know, it's that selfie culture thing that kind oh, of, yeah. you know, you need to have a wildlife selfie. And that is also part of the problem. That's you know, dangerous, the people, you know. Well, the people get too close. And yeah. the handlers were very good at keeping people back. But then, you know, well, they're keeping some people back. Then others are going to... Um, to do that and even if you creatively get a selfie with an orangutan then that concept of I need to go there and see that creature and have a photo with it well it degrades the process but also you know it it creates you know it's part of that thing that uh, you know this this animal is safe this is fine and it doesn't give them that freedom that freedom that they need and I guess part of the issue, you know, I was chatting to a chatting to a handler who was saying that Semengo has actually been quite successful in having orangutan babies because, I mean, part of it is, you know, having a baby there does bring the crowds, They're that does bring the money. Cute, yeah. But then when you've got a wild male orangutan that needs, you know, 500 hectares of, 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 of ground to roam, if they don't have that, then of course you're going to have 
supremacy wars and things like that, and that ends up in having injured animals that then right. have to be rehabilitated or, you know, hospitalised. And so it's a bit of a vicious circle on it. Um, mm. And this is down on the... So we're talking down on the Malaysian-Indonesian border. In Kalimantan, there's... On the Indonesian side, there is a lot more conservation projects going on. There are a lot more orangutan there. Malaysia, yeah, you you can see them, but it's... Uh, I've never been a fan of zoos themselves and I know I understand that they are necessary for for conservation and protection but I still find it always difficult to see an animal in that sort of environment yeah I I actually thought the few hundred acres or whatever it is that they do have fenced off Mm. and where these animals can roam um, I thought that was not a bad sort of compromise in the sense of providing something that looks natural you can't see any fencing when you look out to where the orangs are I mean maybe when you go into gates you do but, you know, I thought well, that wasn't a bad sort of a compromise. And they, they're certainly cute looking. There's absolutely uh, no question we share a, a good chunk of our DNA with them. But the problem is, I don't think people understand how physically strong they are. A handler showed me his wrist and he said that orang over there, which was a big, a big, a big orang with a, with a fat face pad. That's how you tell mm-hmm. it, the older ones. He, he broke this handler's wrist using what we would call his thumb and his forefinger. Oh, they're astonishing. They're seven <laughs> times stronger than a man, apparently. So you don't want to mess with them. And, um, you know, I, I got to shoot a little a baby. It was three months old uh, when I was up there on one trip. That was sensational. But I wasn't allowed within, you know, a few metres of this animal because he hadn't been vaccinated and neither had I. Nothing to do with COVID, just the plain old ordinary things of life. Um, but they are incredibly, they are incredibly cute, and I just hope, I hope they keep going uh, the way they are. But you know, the sun bear. Unfortunately, the story with the sun bear is that the Chinese medicine requires that they're um, that they are tapped for their gall um, mm. fluid. I think that's the correct term. Um, so you'll often find they've got a something projecting from the bottom of their stomach um, oh, when you yeah. see them. It, it's terribly sad. There was a crocodile up there when I was there once, which grew too big for the bathroom at home. <laughs> <laughs> Can you believe that? I cannot. I cannot. Uh, they were, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it really is such a, a rich area of, of incredible animals um and and as you say you know it is a compromise uh and i don't know that i'm I'm so comfortable with the compromise and i think it's going to be interesting to see what's happening on the island of borneo as jakarta moves over there you know as as jakarta finds as indonesia finds its its next capital and and sets up in kalimantan like that's you know um that that is planning is it yeah, and I, um, I'm, I, you know, I don't, um, I haven't read up a lot about it in, in it. I mean, there's a lot of talk about it being a, you know, an incredibly green, a green city. But if you've ever been in Jakarta, you know, um, the, the, the most dominant feature of Jakarta is its traffic jams. So in that you can sit comfortably in a traffic jam for a couple of hours mm. and and that's just a day in the office, you know, you, you build that into your day. So, so I mean, that's that's an all Borneo sort of approach. Yeah. So, um, Tell me yeah, the other the, good reason to go to Sarawak, Belinda. What, what else did you find there? I mean, the animals are terrific, but the animals are fabulous. What else was there? Well, I think I think the food is is uh, is a really big thing to go. Malaysia, mm. Malaysia was just recently named in uh, this uh, just last week in Lonely Planet's um, 
uh, best for 2023 as one of the as the third top food destination in the world. And I think it's absolutely justified. Mm. Malaysians are obsessed about eating. When oh, they're yeah. not eating, they're planning their next meal or they're yeah. talking about the one they just had and they're having a snack while they're telling you about it. Astonishing. I mean, apart from the sort of pan-Malaysian food like nasi lemak and, um, and mee goreng and nasi goreng and, you know, those yeah. sorts of uh, roti chanai and things like that, you know, the basic ones. When you go into Sarawak, the incredible thing about Sarawak, and, and this is an all-Borneo thing as well, is that the jungle provides. Yes. So the food that when you go into the markets, the food that you see, uh, so many of the ingredients you will not see anywhere else in the world and and though and and that's served on the table, so it's it's within season. This is not farmed food, and we're talking things like um, midin, which is the forest fern, yep. which is used as a just you know as, as a green and these beautiful curved ferns um, that are just tossed through, uh, you know, tossed through the uh, wok for a couple of minutes, and and it's just so green and healthful mm. and delicious. Mm. And, and do not forget. Sarawak's take on laksa. The big thing about laksa, I cannot tell you. Actually, I can tell you how many bowls of laksa I ate. <laughs> there was, I think, I was up. It was in in six days. I ate more than a bowl a day. So uh, we're talking a lot. We're talking a lot of laksa here. Um, Sarawak laksa. It's claim to fame. Anthony Bourdain named it the breakfast of the gods and catapulted it into international fame. So, of course, every place, I mean, people just eat it for breakfast. So it's everywhere and you don't have to seek it out. You don't have to go to a high-end restaurant. You don't, um, in fact, I did eat it at a a beautiful restaurant. It was presented in in a high-end fashion at um, one of, I think, the top restaurant, uh, sorry, the top hotel in in Sarawak, which is called Cove 55, which is up on the Sandabong Peninsula, just north of the capital, Kachin. So I ate at their beautiful broth, absolutely delicious. The the chef there, Chef Gerard, did an astonishing thing. It felt healthful. I felt good while I was eating it. Sometimes when you have laksa, you know, you just, if you have it in a, you know, in a fast food hole in Mm. a supermarket like you you know it's really heavy and it's got the big solid noodle so this has a much lighter almost like a vermicelli noodle in it so it is lighter in that sense it's not heavy on the coconut milk you could then also go back to the cafes in in Kuching, which everybody um, eats it in the kopi terms for breakfast. Yeah. So I found it quite interesting. You know, Friday morning, I thought, well, well, you know, we'll go and find some laksa. And we went back to um, one of the places that Anthony Bourdain had eaten at. And it was 10 o'clock in the morning. Everyone's sitting around. They're drinking coffee. They're eating noodles. They're eating laksa. They're having kaya toast. No kids. I think they dropped them all off at school and then... <laughs> Come on, we'll go and hang out down at the cafe. Yeah. And it was just absolutely bustling. And the best that you'll get generally you'll find that a lot of those places stop serving it after 12 o'clock. So, and we're talking plastic tables and chairs, buildings, you know, that were built in the 50s and 60s. So I'm a bit of a tile, crazy tile woman. So We, saw, I just, we noted that. I know. If you go onto my Instagram, you'll just see photos of tiles everywhere. And, you know, dating from the 1920s, you'll see those Federation tiles. These are the 1950s where you see really cute mosaics and stuff like that on the floors. And and they're just open to the elements. So when it's pouring, you're sitting, you know, you're sitting undercover and eating your laksa. And when it's not, you know, the, the air just flows through and everything's really busy and loud and you've got people, you know, 
dashing past you with with cups of kopi o or you know tea tarek which is tea made with condensed milk because yep. you can never have too much sugar first thing in the morning no. um and it's you know it's just such a, a vibrant culture around food that i think that that lonely planet inclusion was absolutely justified so that is yeah. my other top reason i would go to sarawak is oh, go well, there with an empty stomach diet beforehand yeah. because you'll you'll Pack it on while you're there. <laughs> the other fascinating thing about Sarawak is its colonial history. Oh, yeah. Uh, in that uh, the Sultan of Brunei gave uh, Sarawak to a guy called Brooks, who was an Englishman, and it was in rep- it was in return for helping him defeat, I think, the Indonesians. I, I could be wrong on that score. But anyway, a war that the Sultan wanted to win, he got assisted by... Uh, Brooks and Brooks became the first sort of um, uh, well, I don't know how you would really describe it, but white there's a Raja. lot of white Raja is exactly right. There's uh-huh. an awful lot of colonial buildings that sort of match this time frame, and there's a military barracks there now, a museum, quite interesting. Uh, the Cat Museum, I will let slide. I did, I did, out of courtesy to the Sarawakis, go and visit it. I found it hideous, <laughs> uh, and I warned you about it so you didn't have to go through it. I, I, I did not feel the need. There are enough cat sculptures all over the place. You know, yeah. The cats, yeah, on every corner and there's a cat sculpture. You know, even the rubbish bins had um, mm. cat faces painted on them. I was like, okay. that's it. And, you know, I did actually post one up on my Instagram because, you know, I love Instagram. Um, and so I had this picture of, a, of a, um, a, a garbage bin on the street and the caption for it. Yeah. Kitty oh. litter. Oh, very well done. Thank you. I like it. Excellent. The White Rajas are great. Great idea to go. It's interesting Um, because it's, you know, where else in the world does that exist anymore? I mean, India's been there, done that, gone. You know, but they sort of celebrate this particular part of the history of Sarawak. I think so. And, and, you know, I chatted to a few people about this. And um, one of my guides was saying, and she was a, you know, she was a young woman had, you know, and not a history buff, but she was saying, prior to prior to Brooks stepping in as the as the head of the state, he connected the tribes and instilled law that stopped, you know, tribal, um, tribal warfare and and, and created a sense of order and, and prosperity, which Sarawak has has continued today. You know, it, it it has a certain separateness to the rest of Malaysia. And in fact, when they were invited to join Malaysia at its period of independence, um, they put a couple of conditions on it and saying, well, you know, we still want to maintain some independence. And that is why when you fly from KL, it's about a two-hour flight to fly from fly from Kuala Lumpur into Kuching. You actually go through international customs again. So even though you're flying in the same country, and yes, you're, you're going from a different landmass to another, but you still have to go through customs. And they and you present your passport, and they smile. They're so charming about the whole thing and say, mm. "Welcome to Sarawak." But but they have they control their own international borders, which I thought was was quite fascinating. Um, for that but they do they do really um and i think that there's more of a celebration of that the architecture that is left there um i mean colonialism the word colonialism is you know becoming uh, a, a dirty word and i think that 
my discussions with people was that that they were proud of those buildings that those buildings yeah. are the beautiful courthouse in the center yep. of uh, in the center of Kuching which is gorgeously whitewashed it's got those big verandas which now has um, bar, you know a couple of bars cafes there's a bit of a festival hub there and an arts hub so the structure is there it's not being ignored it is being used as a way to showcase things like the coffee from Sarawak Graham Kemlo there speaking with Belinda Jackson.